This morning, we begin a brand new Bible study in the book of Daniel. So turn in your Bibles to page 1003. Oh, wait a minute. You might have a different Bible than me. Go to the Old Testament. If you get to Isaiah, start going right. The way you remember it is Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. You're going to land on Daniel. So we're going to go Daniel chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 7 in our introduction to Daniel. So I'm going to pray, and then we are going to, I know, it's Video City this morning. I'm going to show you a a 90-second video of of an introduction to Daniel. And of course, I'm hoping that it's going to set the tone for our study in the book of Daniel It's going to be exciting. You ready? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we again do thank you and praise you for your grace and your mercy and your love. Lord, we know that the book of Daniel is really a book about the rise and fall of kingdoms. We know that kingdoms come and kingdoms go. But Lord, your kingdom abides forever. And Heavenly Father, we're grateful for the circumstance in which we live, that, Lord, we get to live in a country where we can gather together relatively problem-free, that, Lord, we can pray together and we can read our Bible together and we can minister to one another and encourage one another. Lord, we know that there is no greater freedom than the freedom to worship. And so, Heavenly Father, again, We remember the men and women who so bravely and courageously sacrificed their life so that we could ensure our own freedom. And Heavenly Father, this morning we pray that you would awaken in our hearts a deep love for you and a deep confidence that you're in control, not only of the past, but of the present and the future. In Jesus' name, amen. Hit it, guys. The book of Daniel. The story is set right after Babylon's first attack on Jerusalem, and they had plundered the city and its temple and taken a wave of Israelites into exile. Among them were four men from the royal family of David, Daniel, who's later named Belteshazzar, and his three friends, who you probably know by their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This book tells of their struggles to maintain hope in the land of their conquerors. The book's design seems pretty simple at first. Chapters 1 through 6 contain stories about Daniel and his friends in Babylon, while chapters 7 through 12 contain the visions of Daniel about the future. But this two-part shape is made even more interesting by another design feature, and that's the book's language. It begins in Hebrew, the language of the Israelites, but chapters 2 through 7 are written in Aramaic, a cousin language to Hebrew spoken widely among the ancient empires. But then in chapters 8 through 12, it goes back to Hebrew. This design shows how chapters 2 through 7 are a coherent section, but it also highlights the importance of chapters 2 and 7 for understanding the later chapters of the book. Let's just dive in. Chapter 1 introduces the basic tension of the first half of the book. Daniel and his friends, they're really wise and capable, and they're recruited to serve in the royal palace of Babylon. But they're pressured to give up their Jewish identity by living and eating like Babylonians and violating the Jewish food laws found in the Torah. So they refuse, and they choose faithfulness to the Torah, and it puts them in danger. But God delivers them, and they end up being elevated by the king of Babylon. That's the commercial. Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, we read, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God. And he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, 
gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank, and three years of training for them, so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. Now from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. To them the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. The book of Daniel is unique in many ways. The book of Daniel reveals the details of God's prophetic plan for the nations and for Israel. And so the theme of this book, the reoccurring theme, is the rise and the fall of kingdoms. J. Vernon McGee used to talk about this book in two terms, that, that the historic night with prophetic light, that's what he called chapters one through six. He called the prophetic light in the historic night, verses seven through 12. Because when you live in a world which seems to be out of control, you're wondering what is God's plan and God's purpose. Daniel reminds us that God is in control. As a matter of fact, if I were to try and sum up this book in a single sentence, it would be exactly that. God is in control. And so prophecy in the Bible is inexplicable apart from a right understanding of Daniel. The book has rightly been called the key to biblical prophecy. You will never understand prophecy or the book of Revelation unless you understand this book. So the book of Daniel is personal. It is historical. It is prophetic. And so Daniel will record three separate times of personal trial and great testing. The first is in chapter 1, as he arrives in Babylon with his three friends. The second is that most familiar story to you, the story of the fiery furnace in chapter 3. And then there's a third event, when Daniel finds himself in a lion's den in chapter 6. Daniel and his friends are going to experience great victory and deliverance. But you have to understand something. That victory and deliverance will not be possible unless Daniel and his friends pass the first test. You see, there's going to be great tests in each and every one of our lives. And your ability to pass the test at the beginning is going to determine your ability to pass the test in the middle of your journey and at the end of your journey. That makes sense, doesn't it? And so right away, you might be thinking, well, I've already blown it and I've already had a life that's been marked by failure. But I'm here to tell you something, that the biblical principle is love him and obey him now. We can't change what we've done in the past, but we can change what we're doing in the present. Daniel's life of victory and faithfulness begins with a decision to honor the Lord and obey the Lord. And guess what? Your decision to honor the Lord and obey the Lord is going to bring about the unfolding drama of the journey that God has called you to. So the chapter begins with a description of Daniel's captivity and education in verses 1 through 7. It's going to continue with Daniel's commitment to remain faithful and steadfast to the Lord his God in verses 8 through 21. 
in Daniel, we're going to see the past. And we're also going to get a glimpse of the unfolding drama that is happening all around us. And you're also going to get a glimpse into the future. But Daniel's message isn't simply for those who are curious about what's going to happen. The book of Daniel is going to provide lessons for us on how we can live in the here and the now. So what does history and prophecy have to do with personal integrity? Well, part of the point is what I've already taught some of you for the last couple of years. For those of you who are with me in the book of Matthew, remember we looked at the life of Jesus, the birth of Jesus, the life and the the teachings of Jesus and the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. What does all of this have to do? Because if God has revealed himself in history and prophecy, that revelation informs our personal activity and our personal integrity. Part of what I've tried to share with you is that a real Jesus has come back to life. And if that's true, if what God has said about himself in the past, and if what God has said about himself in the person of Jesus, the life of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus, then we have every reason to believe that what God says about the future is is true. And I've tried to help you understand That in the Lord Jesus, you have power and you have joy, which gives you the ability to communicate a personal testimony to a watching world. And what will that testimony be like? It's going to be very difficult if there's an absence of power in your life and an absence of joy and you've compromised your personal testimony. Well, I'm here to tell you that faithfulness can begin right now. And so we begin with the depravity and the captivity of of Daniel and his friends. Look at verse 1 again. It says, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The verse begins with a tale of two kings. In the course of Daniel's long service to the Lord, Daniel is going to see kings come and he's going to see kings go. Most scholars place the sacking of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar shortly after his victory at Carchemish in the early summer of 605 BC. There were three separate attacks on Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar. In these three separate attacks, in the first attack, he doesn't completely destroy Jerusalem. He doesn't completely destroy it even in the second attack. But in the third attack, he is going to completely destroy the city. You must understand that Daniel and his friends are taken in the first wave of the attacks. So Jehoiakim began his rule in the fall of 609 BC, following a three-month rule of Jehoiaz in 609, who immediately succeeded Josiah. King Josiah of Judah ruled from 640 to 609 BC when he was killed by Pharaoh Necho at Megiddo, or Megiddo, in July of 609 BC. Daniel was born when good King Josiah ruled in Jerusalem. Josiah had made every effort to turn his people from their sin and to turn to the Lord. So the times of Josiah were a time of a brief revival of what it meant to be a Jew. And what it meant to be a part of the covenant people. This last week I saw a video of all things of my kindergarten teacher and my fourth grade teacher. My elementary school was celebrating 60 years of its existence. And I'm here to tell you I was one of the founding fathers of that school. (laughs) I was very young 
when John F. Kennedy was slain by an assassin's bullet. I was the flag monitor that day, and it was my job to put the flag at half mass. I wouldn't have been able to tell you the difference between a Democrat or a Republican, but I knew that the day that the president died, something terrible had happened. I looked around me and the teachers were weeping and the world was weeping and I wept with the nation. I'm reasonably certain that when Daniel heard that King Josiah was slain by an enemy's arrow at the battle of Megiddo, he too wept. The death of Josiah was going to do something. It was going to hasten the judgment of the people of Jerusalem and Judea. Daniel would have been very, very young when he heard the prophet, the prophet Jeremiah preach about a coming judgment that was going to happen because of the Jewish peoples and the, and the citizens of Jerusalem's failure to repent of their sin. Josiah's foolish sons ignored the preaching of Jeremiah and the pleading of Jeremiah. Throughout your life, you've experienced people who have preached to you and pleaded with you to turn from your sin, to acknowledge who Jesus is and the love of God in your life. But we understand something, that there's an unmistakable principle that takes place in the Bible, and that is that God is not mocked. What people sow, that also they reap. What communities sow, they reap. What nations sow, they reap. And so Babylon was located on the banks of the Euphrates River, a little more than 50 miles south of modern Baghdad in Iraq. The journey from Babylon to Jerusalem was about 900 miles. Again, they didn't go as the crow flies. The, the children of Israel, when they were taken captive, they would have gone north towards Syria and Aleppo and Carchemish. Then they would have followed the, the river Euphrates until they came to Babylon. The journey would have taken probably four months. Later, when Ezra and the captives are released, it would take them about four months to make the journey from Babylon back to Israel. In the time of Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon was founded by Nimrod in Genesis chapter 10, and it served as the center of idolatry in the ancient world. The city was in the form of a square. The ancient city of Babylon was 14 miles long and 14 miles wide. So it was 14 miles by 14 miles by 14 miles. The city of Babylon is mentioned 260 times in the Bible. There's only one city mentioned more times. Who can guess which city that is? Jerusalem. Because those are the two great cities in the Bible. Jerusalem becomes a type and a picture of the city of God. Babylon becomes a type and a picture of the city of man. The city of human beings apart from God, apart from the plan of God, apart from the revelation of God, apart from the will of God. Babylon becomes a type and a picture of the world in which we live. And so I want you to think about this for a moment because Daniel is born in Jerusalem and he understands his Jewish roots and the home in which he lives and the God in which he serves. But he is going to be forced into the consequences of the rebellion and disobedience experienced by his fathers and grandfathers. This is one of the most tragic things that could possibly happen, is that our children and our grandchildren have to reap what we have sown. And so, it says in verse 2, And the Lord God gave Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried to the land of Shinar. The land of Shinar is the whole basin 
of, of, of the delta of the Euphrates. So if I say to you something like, Colorado is our state and the front range covers the, the area that covers the whole front of the Rocky Mountain region. So the front range is the Rocky Mountain region. So we have a name for our state, Colorado. We call the, the, the part of the state uh, the front range that, that is east of the Rockies. Shinar is that area that encompasses the whole Euphrates Delta. And so it says, to the house of his God. And he brought the articles into the treasures of the house of his God. I want you to pause again. The story begins with a dramatic picture of war. There's a conflict and a war. And Jerusalem is going to fall. And Babylon is going to rise. Why did the Lord give Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar? And note what the text says. It says, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, into his hand. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't poor planning or, or military ineptness. It was the consequences of rebellion and disobedience. The fall of Jerusalem was inevitable. Why? Because the people of Jerusalem and Judea were not just once, not just twice, but repeatedly warned. They were repeatedly warned, please abandon your sin. Please accept and embrace God's plan. Please Obey God, honor God, love God, serve God. And again, for many of us, you have received repeated warnings. Please, please turn from your sin. Please turn to the Lord. Please make sure that you are walking in integrity and humility. Try to understand who God is. Try to understand who Jesus is. Try to understand the plan that God has for your life. The people of Jerusalem and Judea, for the most part, shamefully practiced the sins of her surrounding neighbors. In Jerusalem, it was marked by idolatry, immorality, lawlessness, they repeatedly defiled God's temple. We know that from 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verses 14 through 21. 2 Kings chapter 25, verses 1 through 21. But there's more. The people didn't just shamelessly engage and embrace idolatry, immorality, and lawlessness. This is the most important part. They repeatedly rejected God's mercy. And patience. I want you to pause and think about that for a moment. Because some of you might think that God has har dealt harshly with you. But the Bible says that he hasn't dealt with you according to your sin. Or rewarded you according to your iniquity. But in mercy and grace, the Lord is at work in your life. Repeatedly reminding you of his great love and his generosity. Repeatedly, God sent messengers to warn the people that he would, in fact, exact judgment. But they persecuted God's messengers. They rejected God's word. The people sinned and they refused to repent. In 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verse 17, it says, quote, Therefore he brought against them the king of the Chaldeans, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, on the aged or the weak. He gave them all into his hand and all the articles from the house of God, great and small, the treasures of the king and of his leaders, all these he took to Babylon then they burned the house of God. They broke down the wall of Jerusalem. They burned all its palaces with fire. They destroyed all of its pre precious possessions, unquote. Daniel and his friends were long gone when these final judgments overwhelmed Jerusalem. 
Jehoiakim had taken the scroll of Jeremiah and cut it up in pieces and threw it into the fire. This is his way of saying, I don't believe the Bible. I don't believe God's word. I don't believe God's revelation. I don't believe God's judgment. I don't believe that it's going to happen. Daniel was already in Babylon, standing before King Nebuchadnezzar, revealing the meaning of his dream in chapter two, when these series of catastrophes are going to overtake the city and overwhelm the people. The book isn't written in chronological order. And so sometimes as the events unfold, it's difficult to determine what, where are we at in the chronology. And I'm going to try to help you understand that. In 597 BC, the Babylonians were back. Jehoiakim died. He was buried without mourning. Jeremiah sarcastically called it a burial, not a burial at all, but rather his words, quote, buried with the burial of a donkey or the politically incorrect word that we use to describe a donkey. In Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 19, to be clear, Jehoiakim is the only king of Judah whose burial the scribes didn't record. Jehoiakim's 18-year-old son, Jehoiachin, would succeed to the throne. He reigned for slightly longer than three months, just long enough for Jeremiah to change his name to Coniah and pronounce a curse on his seven sons that not one of them or any of their descendants would sit on David's throne, Jeremiah chapter 22, verses 28 through 30. The reason why all of that becomes important is how in the world is God going to fulfill his plan to have the seed of David sit on an eternal throne? Well, remember, 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 God's in control. When it looks like things aren't going to turn out the way the Bible planned, make no mistake about it. God is at work and he is going to make sure that the world unfolds just as God has planned. So Nebuchadnezzar deported the king, his mother, his wives, his advisors to Babylon. He plundered the temple. He brought the articles of the treasure house of his God, verse two. This was done to assert the superiority of the Babylonian deities over the deity of Israel. In other words, taking these articles, that means the showbread, that means the laver, that means all of the articles that were used in the Jewish sacrifices in the temple, they are taken away. And again, this was their way of saying, our gods are stronger than your gods. Now again, we need to pause because you live in a culture and a society that will constantly assert that the God of the Bible is dead or meaningless or irrelevant, that the most important thing in the world isn't what the Bible says about God. The most important thing in the world is what I feel about God or what I believe about God. <clears throat> but nothing could be further from the truth because your personal feelings or even beliefs aren't the standard or the measure whereby we begin to understand exactly who this God is. It's the revelation of himself given in the Bible. You see, the Bible will constantly call us not to determine what we believe based on what we, we feel, but based on what the Bible reveals. The Bible says that the just shall live by faith, not by feelings. And so... <clears throat> The king deported thousands of soldiers, craftsmen, nobles, leading citizens. Nebuchadnezzar left behind the poor and the weak and the crippled. Ezekiel was one of the nobles carried away at a later date from Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar left a vassal king to rule of the royal line of Judah named Mataniah. And then his name is changed to Zedekiah. He was Jehoiachin's uncle and the youngest son of Josiah. 
the Holy Spirit sums up his rule this way in Jeremiah 52 too. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the temple was full of idols. Back came Nebuchadnezzar for a third time, full of wrath and full of anger. Jerusalem falls on what the Jewish people call the day of the Holocaust, Tish Ba'av, the ninth of Av. It typically took place in July or August, but it was on the ninth of Av, Tish Ba'av, that Nebuchadnezzar destroys the temple. It was on the ninth of Av, Tish Ba'av, a generation after the death and the resurrection of Jesus that the Romans will destroy yet another temple. And according to the Bible, there's going to be yet another temple that will be destroyed once again. As a matter of fact, the book of Daniel is going to cover the time of the ascendancy of the Gentiles and the Babylonian rule. It's going to take us through the time of the Medes and the Persians and the Greeks and the Romans. And then it's going to fast forward to a future time and the revelation of an antichrist. And it's the book of Daniel that gives us the sharpest and clearest picture of this future antichrist. So the sack of the city in all of its horror inspired Jeremiah to write the book of Lamentations. Zedekiah is caught trying to escape and the last thing that he will see is the murder of his sons before he is blinded and bound and sent back to Babylon where he will die. This is where Daniel is already. This is the place where Daniel is going to unfold his ministry. He is going to obey the instructions given by Jeremiah the prophet. Jeremiah the prophet had said, you will stay in Babylon in captivity for 70 years. And so you need to understand something, that when Daniel leaves Jerusalem, and he's taken away, either he or his friends have under their arms the scrolls of the book of Jeremiah. Daniel may live in Babylon, but his true home is going to always be in Jerusalem. We're going to see that throughout his life. He's going to always turn towards Jerusalem. He's going to remember God's plans and purposes for his people and the unfolding of the future. And so, they're going to ask questions just like you ask questions. Where is God? Why does God let this happen? Why is this happening to his people? What's going to happen? Is God in control? And the answer is yes. God gave the temple treasures and the sacred vessels into the hand of a pagan king. God had left the temple in the city of Jerusalem way before in Ezekiel chapter 10 verse 4 and so in a very real sense the time of the Gentiles had begun in Luke chapter 21 verse 24 Jesus will talk about those times Daniel took the scroll of Jeremiah he reads it and he rereads it in Luke chapter 21 verses 20 through 28 it describes a time when Jerusalem is surrounded by armies and destroyed and in verse 24 it says quote and they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations and Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled these are the words of Jesus the words of Jesus tell us that there's a plan and a purpose that God has for the unfolding kingdoms of men and the plans and the purposes that he has for his own people, the people of Israel. But what's the bottom line? Sin brings judgment. A failure to repent 
To repent brings discipline. Paul warns in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 31, if we would examine ourselves, we would not be judged by God in this way, unquote. So the big takeaway for us is this. In order to avoid discipline and judgment in our lives, we're asked, please evaluate what's going on in your heart. Please ask and answer the question, what are you doing with your life? Tell me what you're doing with your life. Because I know that some of times we feel like we've been taken captive by sin or life's experiences or failure. We think that we've been uprooted from the world that we grew up in and we're taken to a place where we don't really want to be. Have you ever felt like you were taken away violently from that place of security and safety to a place of insecurity and fear? Can you imagine Daniel and his friends? They're taken from Jerusalem. They're taken from the world in which they live. And now they find themselves in the palaces of Babylon. How are they going to maintain their devotion to God? How are they going to maintain the commitment? How are they going to maintain the covenant? How are they going to offer sacrifices when there is no temple and there is no sacrifice? How are they going to honor and obey God in a world where it seems that all of the things that made honoring and obeying God, gone. But now we discover something. Something that the Jews have had to revisit over and over again. And that's the statement of Habakkuk, that the just shall live by faith. That the just shall live by faith. How am I going to honor God? How am I going to maintain power? and witness, and testimony. And so it continues with a description of the captives in verses three and four. Look what it says. Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of the eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish, but good looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge, and quick to understand who had ability to serve in the king's palace and whom they might teach the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. Part of what you need to understand at this point is the king is not, I repeat, not interested in Jews going to work for him. This king is interested in Jews being absorbed into a Babylonian system. His headmaster in charge is Ashpenaz, the master or the prince of the eunuchs. The word in Hebrew is Saris. Saris can mean eunuch, but it can also mean a government official. We're not told if Ashpenaz was a eunuch or whether or not Daniel and his friends were subject to that extreme measure, but we know that they're being invited to participate in that world. And they're young men. By the way, it's a very specific word that's used in the Hebrew in verse four, young men. It meant youth. And it typically meant a youth between 14 and 17. In other words, this is at that time of adolescent malleability. There were some minimum requirements to serve in the king's court. Number one, the first had to do with personal appearance. The second had to do with professional ability. So the young men were to come from the royal line of Judah. The king didn't want odd-looking boys who would offend his royal sensibilities. And Ashpenaz was to focus on their professional abilities. These were supposed to be young men who were fast-tracked to be counselors, administrators, high officials. In, in the beginning of our country, if you went to Harvard or Yale or to Brown or to Princeton, you were put into this Ivy League category where you were placed on a fast track to be the, the kings and the rulers, the heads of governments and, and the heads of business. So the king demanded that the candidates were inspired, look, gifted in all wisdom, 
The idea being that wisdom was a rare and a precious resource. And the king was prepared to pay a premium to find young men who were wise and capable and intelligent. These were supposed to be young men who are able to think through complex issues. They were to be the true heirs of Solomon. The king demanded that they be knowledgeable, but also that they had a predisposition or a propensity to learn. They were supposed to be taught in the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. This language was Aramaic, which is going to be featured in this book, but also Akkadian. The literature would have included volumes and volumes on everything from agriculture and astrology to astronomy and mathematics. The Chaldeans were the ruling class of the Babylonians. Middle Eastern scholars think that the Chaldeans served in the official capacity as the servants or the priests of the god Bel, Merodach. Another word that was used in that ancient world was Marduk. And Marduk was the chief deity to whom Nebuchadnezzar was devoted. They were an exclusive club, famed for their learning. John Phillips says, quote, they were diviners, they were astrologers, they were magicians, they were philosophers and prophets. Nebuchadnezzar doubtless intended to have his young Hebrews taught how to read hieroglyphics from the northern part of Egypt and the Akkadian languages. They were to be thoroughly schooled in all branches of learning. He writes, quote, this king was far-sighted individual with almost an modern eye for human resources, unquote. And that in part is true. But there's a greater truth. It is part of a socialization process in order to make citizens of Babylon. And that's the challenge that we have. The challenge that we have because we're living in a world where government schools are not, I repeat, they are not committed to the education of our youth, they are committed to the socialization of our youth in order to make them good citizens, not saints. We have to ask and answer this question. What is it that this world wants from our children? This world wants our children to believe that they evolved from lower life forms, that there is no God, that God did not create the heavens and the earth. They want you to believe that Jesus didn't come into this world, that he didn't live a perfect life, that he didn't die on the cross, that he didn't rise from the dead. They think that's foolish and stupid. There are people who actually believe that by you coming to this church and sticking your children in our children's ministry or inviting them to vacation Bible school where they will actually begin to love the Lord Jesus and believe that the Bible is true, that you're abusing them. That you're putting them on a fast track, a miserable track. Where they, where they will be conformed into this religious presupposition. Some of you grew up in a world where they thought that church, Christianity, and the Bible is a form of brainwashing. But what Nebuchadnezzar wants to do is he wants to raise these children, if you will, and reproduce in them a process of indoctrination which will make them capable of serving in the king's palace. There's a fine line between education and indoctrination. Indoctrination discourages critical examination of the thoughts, ideas, beliefs, or assumptions of a particular worldview. You know what is the one thing that I will never ever, ever ask you to do is to check your brain at the door. To say, believe this or leave. 
tried to help you understand all of the reasons and the evidences why we can trust the revelation of God in the past. That what the God of the Bible reveals about himself is true and it will remain true. In a pejorative sense, indoctrination suggests using force or pressure to manipulate people into thinking or acting a certain way. Clearly, education implies training and discipline and the acquisition of at least a basic body of information. And so they're going to have to make some decisions in crisis. In verse 5, it says, And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank, and three years of training for them, so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. Now from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. To them the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. In, to Mishael, Meshach, to Azariah, Abednego. Daniel and his friends are offered a full ride, all expenses, scholarship to the University of Babylon. Now you've got to understand something. Remember, they've been ripped out of their culture. They've been ripped from their world. They've been placed in an entirely new and a different world. And in that new and a different world, you might think, well, if everybody else is in such deep and tremendous difficulty, they, they literally are victims of the ravages of war, you would think, wow, I get to live in a palace. Wow, I get to live and eat the most sumptuous foods that are available. Wow, I get access to the sum and the substance of all of the learning that humanity has to offer. Daniel and his friends are minorities in a majority culture. The king's appointment isn't just going to be a safe and a secure place. It's going to lead to a moral crisis and an identity crisis. Because these young men are going to have to ask the question, how am I going to keep kosher in captivity? Do I even need to keep kosher? Why don't I just give up? Jerusalem is gone. The sacrifice is gone. Whatever God wanted doesn't seem to be working out. But Daniel knows, Daniel knows that through the prophet Jeremiah, he predicted that resistance and rebellion and disobedience to God was going to result in judgment and captivity. But that God had a plan and a purpose. In Daniel's mind and heart, he knew that the people of Israel are going to go back to Jerusalem because God has unfinished business with the Jew and he has unfinished business with the world. He's going to bring a Messiah forth. That God's plans and purpose is going to include salvation from sin and reconciliation to God. And so are these young men going to adopt and embrace the Babylonian worldview? Are they going to influence it or is it going to influence them? It's the same challenge that you face as you're thinking about going to that college or university. It's the same challenge that you face in high school when you are repeatedly told, no, the Bible can't be true. No, when the Bible's version of the creation story, it is a myth and a legend not worthy of consideration. When you learn the language and literature of the culture in which you are living, is it going to mold you and shape you in your identity? The issue isn't simply eating foods or keeping kosher. The central issue is, what is it going to mean to be loyal to God, faithful to God, steadfast to God? Captivity restricts freedom. If you're in a drug or an alcohol rehabilitation center, it's going to restrict your freedom. 
If you're in bondage to alcohol or sexual addiction, it's going to restrict your freedom. If you are in a miserable marriage, it's going to restrict your freedom. If you are in a circumstance where you feel where you're working, you can't honor God, you can't obey God, you can't serve God, it's going to severely restrict your freedom. So how are you going to remain loyal and faithful? How are you going to resist temptation? How are you going to resist compromise? I grew up in a generation marked by nonconformity. If people are going that way, I'm going to go the opposite way. There is some advantage to growing up in a contrarian culture. There is some advantage when your rebellious child says to you, no. Now, am I encouraging rebellion and disobedience from your kids? No. That's not what I'm encouraged to be. But what I am encouraging you to remember is that if your son or daughter can say no to you, I wonder if they can say no to the popular world in which they're living in. I'm wondering if they're going to be able to say no to their teachers and their instructors. I wonder if they're going to be able to say no to their peers. And so part of your challenge is how can I encourage you to say yes to the truth and no to a lie? How can I encourage you to say yes to an appropriate authority and discourage rebellion in your life. Robert Anthony said, the opposite of bravery isn't cowardice, but conformity. Great pressure is going to be brought on Daniel to abandon the God of Israel, to abandon God's revelation, to abandon God's revelation about his people and about his future. Cowardice asks the question, is it safe? Experience asks the question, is it politically correct? Vanity asks, is it popular? But conscience returns to the question, is it right? And when you leave for the place where you're going, at your job, in your educational circumstance, when they say to you, there's not even such a thing as right. I'm wondering if you're going to be able to say, well, I know that that can't be true. Because the Bible says there's such a thing as right and wrong and good and evil. Martin Luther King famously said, there comes a time when one must take a position that's neither safe nor political nor popular, but he must take it because his conscience tells him that it is right. So Daniel and his friends are going to be pushed and pushed to the limits by a foreign culture that neither loves God nor regards the God of the Bible, doesn't believe that Daniel and his friends serve any other purpose than to satisfy the needs of the king. And you need to be able to tell your children and your grandchildren you don't exist to satisfy the needs of the culture or even the country. That the reformers were right when they said, you exist to glorify God and to love him forever. Last night I was at an event with my granddaughter and I had three minutes to speak. And I said, they wanted me to talk about the dangers of being with boys but I only have three minutes, so instead I'm going to tell you about the meaning of life, which is far more simple. This is the meaning of life. You exist to know God, to love him, to be in friendship and fellowship with him, and to enjoy him forever. There are things that we must compromise, but there are things that we can never compromise. Opinions are things that we hold, but convictions are the things that hold us. What are your convictions? What are the fundamentals? What is the fabric that constitutes your deeply held beliefs? Someone said that character is what we 
value in our being. Reputation is what men and women think of us, but character is what God and angels know about us. You see, the character that's described in chapter 5, the character that's forged and formed in the later events of this book is going to unfold in this very first chapter. Who you are tomorrow will inevitably be determined by who you are today. And so, why would the chief of the eunuchs change their names? The change in names is designed to hasten their assimilation into this foreign culture. The changing of the name is the hope that it will distance themselves from their Hebrew identity, from their Hebrew language, from their Hebrew culture, their Hebrew religion, and their Hebrew race. The hope is to give them a new identity with new gods in a new future. You see, in that ancient world, a name wasn't just a mere label. It was meant to incorporate something about that person's identity and occupation and preoccupation. Daniel's name means God has judged or God is my judge. Hananiah means Yahweh has been gracious to me. Mishael means who is like God or who or what is God like. Azariah means Yahweh has helped me. The Chaldeans and the Babylonians believed their God was superior to the God of Israel. And so in order to subject and defeat and sublimate and assimilate, they're going to change the names that speak of the generosity and superiority of the Babylonian deities. Daniel is renamed Belteshazzar, meaning Bel, protect his life, or Bel, protect the king's life. Bel is a Babylonian deity. Hananiah's name is changed to Shadrach, meaning command of Aku. Aku is another Babylonian deity. Mishael is chained to Meshach, which is who is Aku. Azariah's name is changed to Abednego, which means the servant of Nebo. Nebo is also known as Nebu, which was also a Babylonian deity. So Nebuchadnezzar's name meant Nabu has protected my inheritance or Nabu has protected my boundaries. So again, even in the, this name, it's to distance themselves from their history, their identity, and their belief. And so what's the goal of eating the king's food and adopting the names? It's to make the children of Judah suitable for their new service in their new world. But this is going to be the challenge. It's the challenge of the New Testament that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, when he says, don't be conformed to this world, but rather be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you can prove what is the good and the acceptable and the perfect will of God. In a sense, Daniel and his friends are in a new place learning new things with a new diet and new names. Question, is it going to change their heart? Is it going to change their life? Is it going to change their way of thinking about God? Is it going to change what they know about the revelation of God? Is it going to change what they know about their past and then the future that God has for them? Because thus far, this is what they're being asked to do. Forget their history. Forget God's plan for the future. And so the test in chapter one is going to determine their victories for the rest of the book. You see, the book of Daniel is about God, how God will show his everlasting wisdom. He's going to show his everlasting power. He's going to show his everlasting faithfulness. But the way that he's going to demonstrate that wisdom and power and faithfulness is because a group of young men 
believe in God's power. Believe in God's love. Believe in God's faithfulness. Believe that they've been placed in this position for such a time as this. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the introduction to our book. You excited? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we know that we live in a world where there's constant pressure. The book of Daniel describes the unfolding of human history as it relates to God's perfect plan in order to bring forth God's perfect Messiah. Lord, you have a plan for us. You have a plan for our family and for our church, for this nation and for our future. Lord, we pray that we would be aware of what that is. That, Lord, we would become aware of the challenges that we have to abandon what we believe and embrace a belief that doesn't include you, that doesn't include your plans, your revelation, your future. And so, Lord, again, I pray that this would be an opportunity for us to think long and hard about what it means to embrace the wisdom of God and the power of God so that we can live lives faithful to God. In Jesus' name, amen.